Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and this week we have a special episode as I sat down with RFU's former director of rugby, Rob Andrew at The Telegraph. We discuss his new book, Rugby, A Game of My Life. Some nostalgia on our playing days as well as looking back at what was an explosive weekend of international rugby action. You, you really didn't have to do that. Um, welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, an evening with Rob Andrew. I'm going to ask Rob odd questions um, and some decent ones probably as well. Um, Rob, let's, let's, let's not beat about the bush. Um, I didn't expect you to. <laughs> some people, uh, I'm not one of them, um, have said that uh, this is one long justification of how you're not to blame for anything that went wrong in the last 10 years. They wouldn't be from the Sunday Times, would they? Uh, oddly enough, well, the leading, uh, the leading voice in that um, is from the Sunday Times. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll undoubtedly touch on that bit. Uh, but what do you say to the general tenor of that? Um, no, look, I don't think... I've, I've admitted in there things that went wrong in, with the union, things, mistakes that I was involved in, um, the challenges that, that I had in the role. I think that was one of the... One of the big things was the challenges that I had. I mean, part of part of this, the reason for the book is 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 really a story of professionalism and the challenges. So it's it's really about '95 onwards. It's not about the period we played before that. It's about some of the challenges that, having gone professional, which we were probably in the vanguard of of actually pushed. The game was always going to go professional. So it was a question of how it went professional. And what the what the consequences of it going professional were, um, I did ten eleven years at Newcastle, which was you know again completely out of the blue. Um, RFU didn't do anything; they basically wanted a year's moratorium. I went there. Newcastle thing happened. I went to the RFU because I felt that I could assist with the relationship between the club and country, which was, I mean, it was a, we were at war basically in two thousand and six after winning the World Cup in two thousand and three. Um, I felt that I could assist in that club-country relationship. Um, some of it was good, some of it wasn't so good. There were lots of issues on the way through. But that goes to the, that goes to the crux of professionalism in this country. Well, let's, I tell you what, let, let's just set the scene for those who might not 
remember or might not be aware. 1991, um, the IRB, as was then, passed a resolution which was called Communication for Reward. And basically what it said was, um, provided you... Well, this is the way that everyone interpreted it, apart from England. Provided you don't get paid for playing or training, uh, you can get paid for interviews, you can get paid for doing advertisements, whatever. And that is the way that every other union... Um, went. Certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. Certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, France, but they, they ignored we all went the rules to, anyway. We went to Dudley Wood, who was then Secretary of the RFU, <laughs> and I, I'll never forget this, I nearly jumped across the desk and butted him when he said this. He, <laughs> Don't he get looked, into head-butting. He looked at the... He was in the most condescending manner and said, well, he said, of course, um, it does mean communication reward, but bearing in mind the only reason that people would want to communicate with you is that you're a rugby player, that means that um, everything is off limits, doesn't it? And I said, um, well, that makes nonsense of the regulations. And I'll never forget him just saying, yes, it rather does, doesn't it? Um, so we had four years of, of battling. I remember having a three-hour meeting with Bob Rogers over the definition of what was a rugby shirt. I, I just, you know, and, and so... But we, we also ended up... You, Will and I got called into an RFU council meeting to explain our behaviour and explain what we were doing when we were trying to raise money for the squad. Yeah. Um, legally, as far as the International Rugby Board were concerned, um, and the RFU council just fundamentally didn't want it to happen. That, that is the bottom line. And therefore, decisions they took subsequent to that, particularly around... August and September 1995 when the International Rugby Board finally overnight said right the game is open I think it was the 27th of August 1995 I don't think any of us could quite believe it but it was on the back of the World Cup in 95 and the risk of players going and signing up with but Acker. I mean the reason I've gone back to this is it's important because that is where the club and country schism came from because we'd been saying to the RFU, this game is going to go professional. If you are sensible, you should get all the players century contracted. You should have a version of um, the divisional rugby or you should favour one club or whatever. But you should do a plan of it. In the end, they ended up with no plan whatsoever. And what you describe in your book happened. Now, I was there at the time. I remember it at the time. Not many people now understand that it was just complete carnage and that players were being bought and sold for transfer money. No one had any idea they could have spent that four years working out with the clubs just how much they might have got in terms of revenue, just how sensible it would have been. Could have had all these plans, instead, nothing. Well, and that's the start of, of this journey, really, which is... And, and then the, where you get to 22 years later and the unintended consequences of decisions that were taken... <laughs> And who knows whether it would have been better or worse or indifferent if, if we'd all been on central contracts. Don Rutherford, bless him, uh, not with us any longer, Don had central contracts in his bottom drawer at the RFU. And they were all named, and, and, but the RFU just weren't prepared to get them out and, and give them to the players. We would have all signed them, having been let down by our Southern Hemisphere friends when they turned turtle on us and we all thought we were going to sign for Packer and we were all going to be off based in uh, New York or Buenos Aires or I don't know where you were going Tokyo probably was it he, somewhere? He, 
No, we've been racist. <laughs> the, um, no, it's interesting that, that Don had all these signed contracts in his bottom drawer because I had them all in my bottom drawer for Packer as well, actually. <laughs> well, I know, and, you, uh, I know yeah. you had. But the trouble is nobody was signed. <laughs> nobody, was, nobody on the other side of the fence was prepared to sign them, whether it was Packer or, or the RFU. And then we got let. We ended up being left high and dry, didn't yeah, we? In, in the end. In but, the end. But look, so this all comes about, people are transferring, and the, the biggest shock was, I mean, so John Hall's introduction into rugby was a complete shock because he'd shown no interest at all. And you get the first call. What do you think when he, when he got the call? Did you believe it for a start off? Well, I, 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 honestly, yeah, I, I did believe it because I, I had a little bit of a premonition, and this is, this is true. I, on the, it was announced, I'm pretty sure it was announced on a Tuesday on, on Sky um, that Sir John Hall had bought, new, uh, bought the old Gosforth Rugby Club, which had actually been renamed Newcastle Gosforth. And I can remember going home and seeing it on Sky Sports News. There was a photograph of Sir John Hall and the then president um, of the Gosforth Club, a guy called Godfrey Clark, running across St James's Park, passing a rugby ball to each other. And it was the lead story on, on Sky Sports News that night that Newcastle United had gone and bought Gosforth from the members. They had a few hundred thousand pounds worth of debt from the new clubhouse that they built. They didn't really know where professionalism was going. The entrepreneur that was John Hall just literally walked in to see the president and the chairman and said, you've got some debt, I'll sort out the debt, just let me take control of the club. They did it like that, bought the club and then the next day, I got a phone call. Um, I was in, in the city office of DTZ, which was the company I tried to work for when we were all playing rugby. And I got a message. I got a message to, could I ring Freddie Shepherd, who was the vice chairman of Newcastle United, who sadly, Freddie's passed away now um, a month ago. Um, and he, he rang and, and I rang him back and he said, look, we've bought the rugby club. Um, we don't, and this was his exact words, so we bought the rugby club, we know you're from the northeast. we wonder if we could talk to you, we, we, have, we don't know what to do with it. We've, we've, do you, do you want to play for us? Do, do, do you want to coach, manage? We just want to talk to you, because we don't really know who to talk to about it. This was the Wednesday afternoon, and they said on Friday, we'll be down in London, uh, we're playing Southampton away on Saturday, we'll be in London on Friday night, if you've got time, can we have what do you think his motives were? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, somebody just whispered money there. I, I think it was in the end, but his wider motive, and I think this was genuine, Sir John's wider motive was a sport, sporting club of Newcastle, a bit like the Barcelona. Um, he, he, he'd been to investigate Barcelona's sort of sporting club, so he bought the rugby club, obviously had the football club, he bought the basketball team, Newcastle Eagles, which still exists, and he bought what was then Durham Wasps ice, ice hockey team, moved that up to Newcastle. And he wanted to create, I mean, Sir John was, you know, he would have independence for the North East if he could. Um, that's, that's sort of where his, his passion lay. And he thought he could create all these sports, call them Newcastle, possibly put them in black and white, and everybody would come and watch them. It didn't quite work out like that, but that was, that was his sort of, passion and then if you could make money on the way through which clearly they did with the football club. So they... you were I mean you're effectively given a blank sheet of paper 
total blank sheet. I, yeah, I, I met them on the Friday night, and I, and I met, not, I didn't meet Sir John that night, I met uh, Freddie Shepherd and, and Douglas Hall, who was Sir John's son. Um, and within three weeks, I walked into the chairman of DTZ, who'd been fantastic for me for 10 years. We went off playing Lions, World Cups, and I'd gone off, and I was, I was lucky enough to be paid when I was away and still have a bit of holiday. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. You've been brilliant for 10 years, but I've just had an, an opportunity that I can't turn down. Um, so I went, I just, that was it three weeks later. So he repaid his loyalty in full and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, Sometimes uh, the opportunities <laughs> in life, you... Hey, I'm not knocking out. But anyway, I mean, you, you, Newcastle are in the second division, I know, because I played for Richmond and we were in the second division. We beat you, actually, uh, to win the championship that year. Um, Two teams went up, fortunately. Two teams went up. Otherwise, we wouldn't yeah. have gone yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> but they, you know, things move move apace, and you know, Newcastle had a, you know, they had a good team, and they had success. But let's move on. You know, you get you get into what was it? What was the catalyst exactly for you going from Newcastle into into the RFU? Um. Well, a couple of things really. We, we'd gone, we'd gone through that early period at Newcastle uh, with with the money, and we were successful. We bought a team, we bought an aging team, and then it sort of fell fell off the edge. We had some youngsters coming through. Um, obviously, that was the Johnny, and and then the Dave Walder. And, Can and I tell Tom everyone May. how much you paid Johnny to start with? Uh, yeah, twelve thousand pounds a year. That was value for money in those days <laughs> for him and us. He was only, he'd only just left school. Um, so his second contract cost us a bit more. <laughs> and his third, and then by the time we got to his fourth, he went off to Toulon. Actually, yeah. no, he stayed longer. He was incredibly loyal to Newcastle and probably stayed probably stayed longer than, than, yeah. he, than he should have done. He was really, really well, he was amazing. carrying the team in the end, wasn't he? Well, he was, yeah. And I think that's in the end. The team... You know, we started to to go off the off the boil a bit. We, we built the stadium in two thousand and three. That was the other thing that that we did in Newcastle, which was we borrowed loads of money off Northern Rock, which was a good plan. Um, <laughs> we got it off them just before they uh, before they went bust. I don't think we tipped them over the edge, but um, so and and then I got to two thousand and six. Um, I'd been at Newcastle eleven years. Um, Dave Thompson was the then owner. He'd taken over from Sir John because Sir John pulled his money out. In yeah. in '99, he said, "Right, I'll pay the wages for another couple of months, and then that's it." At the same time as Richmond, when when Ashley Lovett pulled out of Richmond, and he said, "I'm not putting another penny in after the end of March in '99." So we we managed to persuade Dave Thompson to come and put money in. Remember, these clubs were costing the guys probably two million pounds a year then, late '90s still costing them that now. Um, so anyway, moving forward, the RFU role was um, something that I... I, th I did think long and hard about it, and initially I said I wasn't going to put my hat in the ring for it. And then I had a change of heart, and I thought, well, it, it, I, maybe I could assist with the club-country relationship. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I genuinely felt that we had to find a better way of operating. For the clubs who were battling and fighting with, with Francis Barron and Martin Thomas, and, and, and there was all sorts of battles going on, 
but also for the players. The players were caught in the middle of this. And, and you and I both know what it's like. The last thing you want as an international player is to be forced onto an international field with one arm tied behind your back. It's, it's tough enough as it is. And the profile, even when we played, you, you want to you be given the best chance to win. And so I didn't you, you think... You go in there as... Give, give the, the, because part of the problem I always feel with people's assessment of what you did or didn't do was them not knowing exactly what you were supposed to be doing and whether your job description fitted what you were actually doing and fitting things you know, behind, because that's just caused immense problems. So the first job, you're in charge of what? Well, the, my, my first job, um, th there were three bits to it, really. I, the, the England head coach did report to me when I first went to the RFU um, for the first cycle through to 2011. Um, so technically, I was overseeing the England head coach. So that I obviously got held responsible for the performance of the England team, although I wasn't ever coaching the team. Um, I was I was responsible for the club country relationship, and that was probably the main part of getting the the. the, the we had two agreements with the clubs between 2008 and 16, and then I after. We'd just done another agreement from 2016 to 2024 when I left the RFU. And that was really about building the relationship, the release of players, the development of English players, the academy system, and getting a joined up approach to the development of English players so that we didn't end up in a period where football is now, where the FA basically have no control over what happens in the game and that is still the big risk in rugby for me is that the clubs can't afford to do that yet they still need the RFU's money. So the head coach at the time was Woodward? No the head coach when I first started was uh, was Andy Robinson so I started in September 2006 Andy had taken over from Clive in 2004 when Clive left so Andy was in charge 2005 2006 I started in September, Andy I think was on a losing streak of six or seven games um, and then we, we lost at home to Argentina in the autumn of 2006, a year out from the World Cup of 2007 and that's sort of when the fun and games started around coaches in and out and the various political manoeuvres that happened. So when, you've got to, the thing is, what won't make sense to anyone unless they understand this is the power structures behind at the RFU, because on the one hand you have the, you have the CEO, then you have the chairman and management board, and these are two very different animals. The, the CEO is the one who day-to-day -day stuff. Um, Runs the business. Yeah, and the chairman and management board, effectively is a cipher with a lot of the backwoodsmen in it from the counties who, to be fair to them, they did vote themselves out of day-to-day of -day control, but this was the manner in which they tried to exercise it, you know, breaks and so on. So you've got these two tensions all the way through. And when you have people, Francis Barron, Martin Thomas, varying degrees of poison, um, one ultimately much more poisonous than the other. Um, but if you don't understand that that is playing in the background, then you won't understand about why things are done and how things are done. So you get there, who, told, who, who said it, you know, with Robinson, who was it who first came up and said, he said out, enough? Um, well, Martin Thomas is chairman. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it, Andy was under pressure 
anyway, in, in the start of the 2006 season, at the end of the um, 2006 uh, Six Nations as was, um, there'd been a whole review of the Six Nations. This was before I joined the RFU and various coaches had left. In fact, nearly all the coaching team had left apart from, from Andy. Um, and then Andy kept or added John Wells, Mike Ford to the coaching team in 2006. But he was under enormous pressure. And so when we... But weren't you in charge of all this? Um, not then, not in April 2006. I joined in September 2006, okay? So Andy was sort of almost on... He's, he was on another season, but under, under enormous pressure going in to the 2006 season. Um, and the, the Martin and the, the council members who like to interfere in playing matters um, were by halfway through the Autumn Internationals when we lost at home. We lost the first game to New Zealand, um, which was um, played as a game to open the South Stand. And remember that the club and, club and the RFU had gone to court over that game for the release of players. So Francis, the clubs had refused to release the players. So the RFU had actually taken, taken the clubs to court and won. So that you can imagine what the feeling between the club and country were about, about the relationship. But ultimately, losing to Argentina at home was effectively the, the final straw for Andy halfway through that autumn international. But effectively what you have is you have a group of committee men, none of whom have actually played international rugby, or anywhere near, by the way, effectively telling you, saying, the England coach has got to go. Yeah. Okay, so you, you come in, and you, this is the only appointment, I think this is right, isn't it? this is the only appointment you were solely responsible for, or you, you made off your own recommendation with Brian Ashton. Yeah, well, again, this is where, you know, what tends to happen in these situations, and this is a sort of still old-school politics involved in, in now a pretty highly professional sport, um, a lot of money involved. So, basically, after the Autumn Internationals, when we lost um, the final test against South Africa, because we played back-to-back -back against South Africa, um, and as you well know, Brian, a lot at the post-match dinners, that's where a lot of the smoke-filled rooms, the conversations take place between various committee members about, right, OK, what's going to happen next? Um, so that was, right, Andy's got to go. It's, it's not good enough. So Andy has to go on the, on the Sunday, Monday of that week. And then they sort of say, right, well, if you've got a year to go to the World Cup, you just sort it out. You you decide who the head coach is. Not interested anymore. We've we've done what we want to do, which is get rid of Andy. Um, a year to go, decide what you want to do. Brian was in the coaching team at that point, so a year out, um, we appointed. I I appointed, recommended to Francis and Martin that look a year out from the World Cup, Brian wants to do it. He's got experience. Um, let's let's go with Brian. You go into a World Cup, they get thrashed by South Africa. Everyone is, including me, after hands up, said this is awful. And then, I think, unexpectedly to most people, get to the final. Still not convinced that replay showed Kratos' foot was definitely on the line. It was adjacent to the line from a certain angle. But anyway, you know, at the end of the day, you come second. Um, there's a major review again. He gets reappointed. Was there a pressure to bring anyone else in at that point? Um, 
Not immediately after the World Cup. I think because, because the team had got to the final, I mean, a pretty strange route to get to the final, um, you know, and that team, there was, there were some good players in that team. Some had left over from 2007, uh, 2003, sorry, one or two youngsters coming in. And, and look, it was, a, it was a disjointed World Cup, clearly, but a bit like the French team of 2011, who the French team virtually sacked their own coach halfway through the tournament once they'd lost to Tonga. And then they got to the final and should have beaten New Zealand in the final. Which, so that was a bizarre set of circumstances. And we all know how some of, sometimes these things play out. So Brian, because he got to the final, the pressure was less than if we'd, if we'd gone out in the, in the quarterfinal, for example, or, or we nearly, nearly went out in the group. Um, we had to beat Samoa to stop us going out in the group. Um, so there wasn't so much pressure leading up to Christmas, but then once the Six Nations started, um, and we started poorly, and then lost up to Scotland, lost up in Murrayfield against Scotland, which, again, a bit of a graveyard for, for most English teams have had a moment up in, uh, up in Murrayfield. I can remember one, certainly. Uh, um. Um, but I think every Clive's team lost in 2000. And, and, At know, what point did John Steele come in then? And uh, replaced Francis Barron as a CEO. That wasn't until 2010. Uh -huh. So 2000 and we're now in the 2008 um, Six Nations, and that's when the pressure on Brian intensified, and that's when the Martin Johnson room talks, rumours uh, started to be put forward, and and f for the likes of Martin Thomas and others, he became the answer. He, he became the sort of saviour um, of the English game. Because I remember Francis Barron saying, um, you know, who picked, they would be being asked, you know, who picks the team? He said, well, and who picks the coach? And saying, well, we uh, rely on advisors. You know, Rob Andrew is the, um, the director responsible and therefore he will give us a recommendation. And I remember people someone saying, and what if you don't like the recommendation? And he, I remember him saying, well, we'd be fairly stupid to ignore that recommendation, wouldn't you? And I remember writing, yeah, this is the RFU. Of course, it, it's, 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 that's no bar whatsoever. Um, and, you know, funnily enough, uh, you recommended that Brian was retained and re told um, no. Were you actually told no, go and appoint Martin Johnson? Yeah, it was made very clear to me that, that Martin uh, should should be appointed England head coach. And this was if by Martin Thomas? Yeah. Martin Thomas, Yeah. again. Um, and I remember writing at the time, and I maintain this, and you've got your, your reasons, 400,000 of them probably, um, that, um, that uh, you know, I said at the time, you should have resigned on principle because <coughs> you've made a recommendation. They haven't accepted it. Um, why, did that ever occur to you to do that? And, and if so, why not? Um, it did occur to me, but I, I decided not to. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Look, it was a. It goes. I think it was that period from 2008 to 2011, and then the John Steele um, in, John Steele out, <coughs> the, the Martin Thomas issues of 2011. That that whole period for me was, if you like, it was the last. It was the last throws of the old amateurs who had been in charge right through the time that we that we played, 
who who felt they had the ultimate power to make decisions and, and felt that they were the ones who were running the RFU for their own benefit. Did the Johnson appointment come before Steele was there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so Francis okay. was still there. So you got that. And I mean Martin Johnson, you know, an absolutely iconic player, a great bloke and one of you, no coaching experience whatsoever. And I remember writing and saying, if he is a manager, it is just about possible that he could have gleaned enough from being around, you know, the setup for a long time, from being on Lions tours, being the sort of man he is, to be a manager. But he must not be a coach because he's got no experience of being a coach. And one of the things that I could never, we could never work out in the press was, what was he actually doing? Was he a manager? Was he a manager coach? Was he, co you know? And when it became clear that he was actually doing some coaching, I remember saying, "This is crazy," you know. I, I had a chat to him several months before he took the job. And I remember talking to him and he said, well, I don't know whether I'll coach or not, but if I do, I'll probably start the Tigers with the forwards and something like that, because I want to get a grounding. And all of a sudden, then he's, he's England manager, which is one of the pressure jobs in the world because of you know, all the expectations. And it was, it, I don't think it was fair on him. I don't think it was fair on everyone else. But one of the things that you were criticised for was not giving him the support. How do you respond to that? Oh, enough support. Yeah, I look at. I think that got levelled sort of in the Stuart years towards the end as well. Although I, I by then I was I was not responsible for the head well, coach. Stick on this one because we'll come to that one. Come on to that one. Yeah. Yeah. You, in the end, there's only, and this is where the director of rugby role at the RFU or any director of rugby role is is quite difficult because. There's only so much support that you can give any guy who's in the main in the main job. You know, you can talk to them, you can advise them, they'll talk to their coaches, but in the end, they all they're all headstrong individuals, and this is part of the the comment in the book around appointing coaches and how you support them. And in the end, they take the job, and ultimately, I had quite a lot of chats with Jono about whether he should or shouldn't take the job. Tim Buttimore was advising him. Tim was questioning whether he should or shouldn't take the job. In the end, he wanted to take the job. He felt he could do it. He felt he could make a difference. Um, you know, you know. Which job, though, manager or coach? Well, he was manager. I mean, in the end of the day, he was the manager. He had a team of coaches, um, and it. The, you could give him a head coach title. All head coaches do it slightly differently. So if you're a if you're a Joe Schmidt as head coach, you will do more coaching than than say I suspect Warren doesn't do as much coaching as say Joe Schmidt does in terms of hands-on coaching on the field. So they all do it slightly differently. But the big issue for all of them, whether it's Clive Woodward, Eddie Jones, Steve Hansen, if they're in that position. They're in that position because they want to be in charge. And, and you can support them, you can advise them, but it's quite a difficult line to tread because if you, if you step in too much, they say, well, and they don't agree with you, well, they say, well, why don't you do the blooming job yourself? And if you, if, you don't get, if you don't support them as much as people think you should, then you get accused of not supporting them. Well, in the end, the answer to that question is this. When Martin Johnson was interviewed when he you know, went, he was asked this question, were you given enough support? And he said, I, I was given all the support I wanted. So unless you think Martin Johnson is the sort of person who's a shy, retiring 
wallflower and would not, you know, would not say something he meant, then that, to me, is a definitive answer and some, it's over Stuart later on. So then Clive comes in um, and, you know, I'm, I, I watched Clive's... Clive deserves immense credit for winning the World Cup. He's the only one who's done it. Um, all I'd say with Clive is you can't take his career in isolation. You, know, you can't have that bit and then say that he wasn't responsible for the, the Lions tour, which was a disaster you know, in 2005 to, to New Zealand. You can't have it all. Uh, you can't cherry pick. So um, I'm not going to go too much on that because more interesting to me is the steel thing. Because you, you have a change of role under steel and you went from what to what? Um, well, I went from elite rugby director, which was the, my, the job title when I went to the RFU, which had the England head coach reporting to me and, and all the other sort of elite rugby, professional rugby stuff. And then when John got the job as, as chief executive, he restructured the RFU and, and created effectively three rugby positions. One was going to be a performance director, which is where sort of Clive debate came back in. There was a community director looking after the community game, which there always was. And then he created a, another rugby director role, which was the operations director, who effectively, and I ultimately became that, that position for a while, which was looking after all of the professional game relationships with the professional clubs. And the performance director was effectively just looking after the sort of the, the national teams. So at that um, point, you, you didn't have responsibility line-wise for the England team? No, I, my, my job changed mm -hmm. um, because I, had, I was ultimately asked to reapply for sort of part of my old job. Um, and when it came to the, the head honcho um, and they were looking for someone, you know, to, to do this, there were rumours principally through the, the Sunday Times um, you know, about Clive coming back. Now, the problem was, Clive was, um, the, you know, was at the BO, you know, British Olympic Association because 2012 is coming up and he wants to be chef de mission, he should have been chef de mission. Um, and therefore, any approach could not be made publicly. Because, and, and when it actually spilled out that it was, he had to deny it and say, no, no I'm nothing to do with me. Uh, I'm fully focused on this. But everyone, you know, anyone who knows, knows that he was being touted in the background. And the, what, is this right? You had the power blocks and you had Thomas there and he was the advocate for, for Clive coming back in. And he knew he couldn't do it in the normal conventional manner of putting your CV in and everyone being interviewed. And I am fairly happy that it was an attempt just to do it, you know, by the back door, by, by a nod and one of you and railroad all the, the systems uh, and everything else through. Um, so you had other people, you know, being in the mix. You had um, Nick Mallet being in. Who else was touted at the time? Nick Mallet, Jake White, he must have been, because he always is. Um, I don't know about Eddie Jones at the time, but... I think Eddie's name was mentioned, but I don't, I don't think there's any... But Clive uh, was a big one in the background, wasn't it? Well, the, well it, yeah, it was, it was believed, expected, that the whole purpose of John Steele creating the structure, which had a performance director, the whole thing about... Um, the performance director and Clive wanting to be the performance director of the RFU was deemed to be that was the reason to create the structure first, which John Steele was brought in to do. Um, I had my job, but it was effectively put at risk 
um, on a league in a legal sense, and I was asked to apply for the rugby operations. I, in fact, I wanted to apply for the rugby operations director role because that was what I was ultimately, in a sense, more interested in in terms of systems and and relationship with the clubs and, and academies and developing the. But the, the headline pipeline. thing was for the overall supreme mode through through this reorganisation and director rugby and. Because you, I mean, because like you know, basically, Clive, I don't ask him about this, but I'm pretty sure he thinks this, and certainly a lot of journalists think that you were responsible for blocking his ascension to that role, uh, which they believe would have, you know, been Manana. How how could I be responsible for blocking that role when I when I'd applied for, gone through a process, and I was now rugby operations director, and. The irony, and this this is a slight irony. Well, it's not a slight. I think it's it's a it's a it's a great irony. Is that the whole performance director role, which is an Olympic role, really? It's not a rugby role. It, it's creating a situation where, when Clive was head coach, he point blank refused to report through the then performance director, which was a guy called Chris Spice who left in April 2006 because he only wanted the direct reporting line to the chief executive because he wanted to be in complete control of, of everything he did, which is what head coaches of rugby teams want, which is why when Nick Mallett was touted as head coach, he didn't like the idea of reporting through a director of rugby. Um, do you think Eddie Jones would like to report through somebody else to the chief executive? I mean, that's not how these guys work. Um, Clive didn't want, in fact, he point blank refused to do it. So the whole notion, which was a Martin Thomas notion, John Steele, I think, went with the idea to begin with and then realised that actually this was probably going to cause more problems than it would solve, having a performance director and, and then coach underneath it. He, he then changed his mind. John changed his mind about the performance director role, which then created the situation where Martin removed him as chief executive within 10 months of being appointed because he effectively didn't do what he wanted him to do. And then all hell broke loose. And then there was an investigation of the RFU council into the Martin as chairman. And then we kick into, into the sort of summer of discontent in, in 2011. So I never understood how Martin Thomas got away with the fact that he was in that position. And yet um, half his company was owned by Nigel Ray. Um, which I would have thought is a fairly big conflict of interest, if you ask me. Um, but um, and I know that because I looked up at company's house. Um, well, the biggest, uh, another big irony for me was that he sort of, the council effectively uh, investigated them through Jeff Blackett's report, which became public. He was removed as chairman of, of the RFU. But because he got rid of the chief executive, they then decided to make him acting chief executive. So when he went, you effectively, the corporate governance of the RFU was so good that you had no CEO and no chairman of the management board. Um, and the FD had to step in, didn't he, for a while? Yeah. And then he asked you to find someone. Was it permanent or for, why did he ask you anyway to do this? If you uh, weren't responsible. Uh, after, the, after the 2011 World yeah, well, Cup. Yeah, when he was, well, yeah. after, the sort of, after the sort of carnage of the 2011 World Cup, when we'd been, we'd, we'd had a sort of, uh, a governance vacuum all summer with the governance of the, uh, the, the council and the board fighting each other. Martin's still hanging on at this stage as, as acting chief executive until 
until the board finally removed him after the World Cup. And then Steve Brown stood in as acting chief executive. Um, by this stage, um, I'd now had another change of job title. I'd gone from rugby operations director to now professional rugby director, which which what had, did that mean? Well, good. Well, good. If you read the book, it's in there. Um, no, well, uh, uh, um, I have read you, the book. <laughs> I've just want um, you to tell everybody, because uh, um, otherwise that, it won't come over on radio. And that um, that effect, I now was effectively given back all of the stuff that I had in the elite rugby director role, apart from the line management of the England head coach, was right. now going to go directly to the chief executive. Okay, so Steve Brown um, is acting chief executive because Martin has gone, I'm professional rugby director, and we've had Jono step down in late November 2011, and we are now two months away from, from the Six Nations, so we're looking as a union, um, we're looking at finding an interim solution for the Six Nations, which we don't have a full-time chief exec because they were going to the market and Ian Ritchie didn't arrive until midway through the Six Nations, I think in February 2012. So Steve Brown um, and the board effectively said to me, by this time, the other change we've had on the board is we've now got independent non-executive directors for the first time which is the first time ever in the history of the RFU, which is the other political and governance point that I'm trying to make in the book, is that um, the old regime didn't want independent non-executive directors on the board for obvious reasons, um, because that meant that Martin couldn't do what he wanted to do. Um, it might have been a woman as well. Well, God, for <laughs> God forbid. Um, Absolutely, but that's another point. So the first time, so you go through all the issues from 95, um, the first time we, ha we have three independent non-exec directors on the board. So we then, Steve Brown is acting chief exec, we're going to the market for a new chief exec, and we sat around as a leadership team and a board saying, right, who's going to run the team for, for the Six Nations in 2012? So you recommend Stuart Lancaster, he gets a job, comes second, and like a lot of his campaigns, only just failed to get a Grand Slam. I remember writing at the time, and I only remember two or three other people uh, going against this, because there's a lot of people being wise after the event and saying, no, I never said this, you, you did. Um, because he'd done that job, a lot of people, most people I know in rugby said, well, fair play, give him a chance. He's English, you know, indigenous coach, let's, let's see what he can do. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's, that's, majority. That's, that's exactly what happened. And, and, um, and then he, you know, he made these strides. He did lots of very good things. Eddie Jones has said publicly, and he's quite right. Had he not done the basic building block jobs that he, he did really well, then Jones could never have taken them as quickly to the stage they are now. Yeah. He's always done that. And then we have the World Cup. Um, but I think the other point that I made in the book, which I just want to touch on very briefly, <laughs> is that... The whole process of appointing head coaches is, is fraught with, with difficulty. And in the end, whatever process you use, you're going to get judged on how successful the head coach is. So um, obviously, John O's appointment was very different to Stuart. Stuart's interim appointment was effectively my recommendation through that Six Nations, always with the intention that we would have a formal process at the end of the Six Nations of 2012, which we did. And remember, we had a panel of the good and the great um, 
Ian McGeekin, Connor O'Shea, uh, Richard, Richard Hill. Hill, and um, I was the on that. Yeah, you and, and, and the new chief and exec. Ian chaired the panel because yeah. Ian by then was chief exec who'd come in. So in five February. people confirmed that. Yeah. Um, and well, there's a full pro full yeah. interview process. And to the extent that they're there, anyone is culpable for the 2015, you know, going out in your own World Cup, you are culpable, but you're culpable as one of five. Correct. Yeah. I just want to get it straight, you know. Correct. There was, but uh, well, the point is, is, is that was an open, transparent process. Um, we, we interviewed uh, a pretty strong shortlist, uh, and I, I won't name everybody that was on that shortlist. Um, and Stuart came out of that process with two rounds of interviews with that group of people um, looking for the qualities we were looking for in an England head coach <coughs> at that time in March 2012. And in uh, retrospect, it's as simple as this. When I saw the team, the first team, take the field against Fiji for the World Cup game, Fiji? Yeah. Fiji. And it had 346 caps or something like that. They were never going to win the World Cup. It's as simple as that. Can't do it. There's a reason, there's a common denominator, which is absolutely, you know, it's ineluctable from one to the other. They all have at least 600 caps, at least 40 per, per, per position, give or take, you know. And ideally, you want a raft of the players who've got 80, 90. You want a raft of people who've got, you know, 40, 50. And then... You want people who are relatively new, newcomers, who are, you know, great on form, uh, you know, in the teens. And maybe one or two who can just bolt us. When you do it, if you don't have that demographic, you've got to ask yourself why you would be the country that books a trend which is immutable from every single World Cup winner. Why you would be the one. And you won't be, bearing in mind how good these teams have been. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You know, and, uh, the, you know, I honestly believe... I know that Stuart Lancaster, because I had a long chat to him when he started about the need to do this, and I know he was trying to do it, and then people get getting injured, um, and there were various things. He just couldn't get there. Had he had, like Clive had, the six years, who knows where, where he would be. But the fact is that the way, and the fact it was a home World Cup, and we, we didn't get through from you know, our group, which was a difficult group, um, for everybody, not just England, that effectively sealed his fate. Now, to this day, you know, I have his own reasons. I do not understand the Burgess affair. Um, again, let's get this right. You're responsible as one of five for that. And you know, I'm not. I'm, this is not a. I'm not. It's not a stick to beat you with. It's just making plain the fact is that no one else seems to be mentioned when when you come down to this, because it was going really well. It was in the right direction. The trajectory was really well there. And then, the, you know, the the immediate period before. As a, an outsider who'd been fairly reasonably close, actually, to watching what was going on, I started to think, I don't understand, what, what, I don't understand why this is happening, I don't understand this, I don't understand that. From your point of view, what, what went wrong? Uh, I, I, look, it's, again, it, I, I talk about it, and, and it, the, whole, the whole obsession around the Sam Burgess affair and I don't really get where that obsession came from. Um, Sam will no doubt want to want to talk to me about it again. Um, but 
and it's not about Sam Burgess this, it's not about Sam Burgess the individual, it's not about Sam Burgess the, the, the outstanding rugby league player who will probably go and win the World Cup for us against Australia and I hope he does uh, at the weekend. This is about what became, appeared to become an obsession with one individual to get them in, fast track them into an England rugby union team for a home World Cup. Um, so the decisions to get him to get an English club to buy him, that Bath bought him out of his contract in in, Aust in Australia with the Souths. Um, he then then they decided then Bath were trying to play him in one position. Stewart felt he should play in a different position. Nobody quite knew what his position was. It was sort of reminiscent to when Andy Farrell came across in 2006. And as we both know. Coming across from rugby league, if you have never played rugby union, is incredibly difficult. And there's probably only one player in England who's actually mastered it, Jason Robinson. And that was because and he was a winger. And he was a winger. So actually, they don't have many decisions to take to make anyway. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they have a few to make, but they're on the edge of. They're not. You know, what's the most difficult part of the game? In, in rugby union, probably midfield is definitely the hardest part, much harder than playing in any other part of the, of the team, certainly harder than the front row. But um, <laughs> in terms of decision making and, and, and using, using your brain to, to make things happen. Um, but the back row and the midfield of, of, a, of a rugby union team are fraught with difficulty. Yeah. Which is, which is why it's so difficult to get those units correct. And you're asking a player who's never played rugby union to come in and, and you, you're, not only that, you're actually swapping him between back row and, and, and centre in the six months leading into a home World Cup. Well, I mean, I, I was consistent in this. I tried to be as consistent as I can when I write. Um, and I remember saying, if you didn't know who that person was or his background, can you point to a performance for Bath in either position which would say to you, I don't know who that player is, but God, he's got to play for England. And you couldn't. Not his fault. It wasn't Sam's fault. No, it wasn't his fault. You know, it was an impossible task. And I, I remember saying to you, I, what I didn't understand was this. Is as soon as you introduced that into the equation, I said there was, a Burge, there was going to be a Burgess question every single, and there was, every single uh, press conference, every day. When is he playing? Why is he not playing? I said, if you'd not picked him, all that could have been said was, if you'd have picked Burgess, you'd have won the World Cup. Or you got a lot further. And who knows? But you couldn't have told. So once you picked him, all hell was going to break loose. And, you know, I, I knew that. And anyone from the North could have told you that. Because the rugby leagues then, aficionado uh, day and got involved, saying, you know, the reason... And all sorts of things. And I said, it just added a distraction which you didn't need in a World Cup when the pressure is on. And I, I still don't understand why Stuart, who started off, and I don't understand why he didn't want the manager to take away the stuff, the extraneous stuff, because he ended up doing all the press conferences himself. And, he, and to start with, I think he enjoyed it because everything was going well. And of course, when things don't go well, that's when you need a, a cipher for people to say, look, come and give me all the rubbish. You know, I'll take all this and then, you know, I'll just flannel. But, but he was, but, uh, again, he was, he was offered that time and time again. Right from day one, when he, was, when he was appointed head coach, he was offered a, a manager role all the way through. And, and, and that's, you know, the bit, again, I'm trying to make in the book is that, that I'll probably never know, you'll probably never know 
why why the obsession with Sam Burgess and I, I, what, how much was Andy Farrell involved? Was Stuart the driver of it? Um, in the end, the point again I'm making is Stuart was the head coach and he makes the calls. He listens to his coaches, he picks the team, he has to and it's the same with, with Eddie and, and they want that job to make those big calls. But then you make a call like Sam Burgess and you have defined the World Cup. You, that was defined from the moment he was picked in the training squad in June, early June, when they went off to Denver and it just became, and it, it sort of, un, it just started to unravel. Um, and it wasn't just the Sam Burgess issue. The other issue that was left behind was some of the players who were left out of the World Cup squad. Burrell. Burrell in particular which had an impact not only on Luther, clearly, but on other players in the squad who felt that Sam had been parachuted in. Well, people forget all this when they write. You know, they don't understand that friendships form and they might not be rational or whatever, but they are there. And if you drop someone who's, who's got a lot of mates and is very popular and everyone doesn't think he should be, then that's going to have an effect. doesn't matter what you say, it is going to have an effect. And, you know, as coaches, that's the sort of thing where you earn where you where earn your you money, earn, you're that, where, you where you have got to be quite savvy about this. It's a very simple thing, isn't it? Same at work or whatever. You, the, there, are, there are things you have to do. So do you think um, that it could have been, it was feasible, bearing in mind what, would, what Clive learnt uh, you know, from 1999-2003 for Stuart to be retained or not? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not ducking that question. I, I, I wasn't involved in the review of... Um, of the World Cup and the decision not to retain Stuart. That, that is, that I wasn't, there was another panel put together, um, which Ian McGeekin actually sat on the review panel, having also sat on the panel that appointed him in the first place, to then, to then decide that, that Stuart wasn't going to be retained. Um, th those findings were never made public. They, it was just a decision was taken that Stuart wasn't, his contract wasn't going to continue. Um, jump to weekend just gone. Got to start with Scotland, whether you like it or not, um, <laughs> because that was a phenomenal win. You know, I don't care if Australia went down to 14 men; they were put away, you know, pretty comfortably. Yeah, I think I think the encouraging thing for Scotland is there's been there's been a couple of years now where some of their younger players coming through have shown talent. You know, yeah. that there's some physical talent there and there's some skill and there's some athleticism and, and what Gregor did with Glasgow over a number of years, the way Glasgow played, winning the Pro 14. Um, so you, you can see from a distance, you can see that Scotland journey taking place and I think the, the Scotland academy system has been better and, and there are some talented players there. Well, there's obviously a bit of depth because you lose Hogg in the yeah. warm-up, far from ideal isn't it? Not just as a player but as a the sort of talisman that he is, McGuigan comes in, has a great game. It's probably the first time since, uh, what, the late nine. I mean, Scotland won the last, as, as my Scots friends keep reminding me, they are the Five Nations champions and always will be, because they were the last ones to win it in 1999. Um, and that was probably, a, you know, the, in fact, Gregor played uh, when they scored the try in Paris. I think Gavin scored in Paris, didn't he? And it's probably the first time since then that, that you've looked at the Scotland side and gone, actually, there's some good players here. 
Um, and, and if Gregor can get the, get them working together um, and playing playing the sort of modern game effectively and having the courage to, to, to continue playing it. And where are Wales? Well, I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I'm not, not sure I care that much either, to be honest. But um, <laughs> no, that's not that's not true. Um, look, I think Wales are Wales don't quite know what they are, do they? That they don't know. Um, they've had such a long period of playing in a certain style, and I'm not going to name that style um, as as a group of players. And the 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 modern game has moved on significantly, and they now what they're trying to play it. But you could tell by the way they were trying to play it at the weekend that they. There's some way behind. Well, they're also coming to, you know, during that time, they've had a remarkably settled team, actually, mm. as well. Um, you know, the, the, the players have earned a lot of caps. And they've done, you know, have done really well, apart from that breakthrough to the very, very top echelon. And what they're trying to find now, for me, is the bit that unlocks that, because it's, as you say, the, and this is New Zealand-based, uh, and I think it's quite right, and thank God for that. You know, I think they've gone away from the fact that you need to be powerful enough now. Yeah. You know, being bigger and stronger is not the deciding factor. And thank God, you know, it's the creativity. Uh, and, you know, if you happen to be massive and you're creative um, and brilliant, then, then so much the better. But that is why people are looking for this. And the, the, the problem is it doesn't just come. You know, no, it, it takes, takes three, takes, four, five years oh, to do that. It takes a long time. It's a mindset shift as well. And Eddie, I think Eddie Jones has been the recipient of actually a change in the premiership because I feared when Toulon were winning everything that the English clubs would follow them and say, we just need to have massive forwards yeah. and big backs. And they went away from that. And I can detect certainly in the last two seasons without question, you know, a willingness in amongst the premiership clubs, you know, to play more rugby, to be more creative, to be more expansive. You know, and, and I think that's helped Eddie Jones, you know, as well. Uh, it's a real shame that I don't, you know, whoever puts the fixtures, you telling me that they'd done eight years in advance, the international fixtures. The, the fact that England haven't played New Zealand for three years, you know, is, is not helping them because it would have been really useful this time round to see exactly where they were. You know, against Australia, Australia have some structural weaknesses. I think that, you know, as you can see, when the Scotland game came in, I think the tired as well. And they are not as good as New Zealand, despite, you know, having the win there. It would have been really valuable to, to be able to measure them. So you can't, I'm, I'm still uncertain as to whether the upward trajectory, which has definitely been there for most of Eddie Jones's reign, is still on a steep curve or a medium curve or it's flattened out. We, we don't know without, without that test. No, we, we we don't, and it is a real shame. Um, albeit, it looks to me like Eddie has decided that this autumn would be one for experimenting. He, he obviously had the, the summer in Argentina without the Lions players. So you have to go back to the end of last year's Six Nations to sort of see what, what the first strength side was. And actually, unfortunately, the last time we played then, we lost in Dublin. Um, so it's going to be really interesting, this Six Nations, to see where they pick up when he sort of puts the first choice side back together, which I think he will know what that is. And he's been looking at other players in this autumn to see if he can expose some more players and, and, and get a, a more strength in depth. But he'll, he'll know what his first choice so side is. So normally you would have, you, know, you would normally say having Wales and Ireland at home, which I think they've got this time, and having France 
Scotland and Italy away is an advantage. But now Scotland is going to be a difficult place to play. France, God bless them, have started. I don't know how they do this because it's, you know, but they have started now. They've always had tremendous talent and they've got several young players now who are really good. If they could get themselves ready in time to play that, you know, to play away from where they've been, this stereotyped bashing game, you know, that they've been playing for, for far too long. And they'll be, they'll be difficult. So this year's Six Nations should be really interesting. Yeah, but we say they'll be difficult all the time. And, and, and as we know, and, and, and you in particular, um, managed to get under their skin for about eight years. They are, they are, they're just not consistent. They just cannot produce a consistency of performance over over a single game, let alone over a sequence of games. It's just something in their makeup which is fantastic to, to sort of watch. Fantastic to watch their good bits, but then you know that ten minutes later they'll, something will implode. So, you, so, and they've gone with much younger players. So they're very inexperienced now, and and so you're not quite sure what Guinovez is trying to do. Um, so I, th I think the Scotland game is the one. I mean, Italy away, France away. You, you'd expect this England team to win those two games and you'd expect them to beat Ireland and Wales at Twickenham. Um, so, blooming Murrayfield um, again with a, with a, you know, and, and name me an English side, an English group of players that hasn't, hasn't slipped on the Murrayfield banana skin. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Rob Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Brian Moore's full contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family, as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.